Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. I am your host, Kyle Bird, and with me is my co-host... Matt Parmer. Um, and we are excited today. Um, I get to check off a bucket list item, uh, which is interviewing a asylum director. Um, and uh, with us we have uh, Mr. Daniel Lusco, the director of... The new film, Ape vs. Monster. So, uh, say hello, and thank you for joining us, Daniel. Ah, it's awesome. I, I'm so happy to be a part of this. I really am grateful, and uh, yeah, uh, happy to be a part of that, crossing something off the bucket list, you know? <laughs> I... <laughs> It's awesome. You know, I we and and our longtime listeners, you know, our regular listeners know we are very pro asylum on this podcast. We've discussed many asylum films, and uh, um, I am known to be a little bit of an asylum apologist. And so, I, it's really awesome to have you here because I've always wanted to know a little bit like how the sausage is made over there. Um, uh, so again, I'm, I'm really excited to have the opportunity. Um, before we talk about the new film, uh, Ape vs. Monster, let's just kind of get into your background a little bit. Uh, I mean, like what made you decide to get into filmmaking? Where did you first, you know, discover that spark and that it was something you wanted to do? Well, I thank you for asking that. I kind of fit right in, I think, with the asylum and really like their attitude towards filmmaking because when I started making movies, I was just 14 or 15 years old, you know, like many kids uh, running out with a high video camera and just trying to capture as much production value as possible. For example, you know, I did a an homage to Last of the Mohicans when I was a kid and we used real machetes. We created a ring of fire. We almost burned down um, our neighborhood, but we didn't. And, it, and we felt we captured as much production value as possible. I think the attitude that Asylum takes towards making a movie is is not all too different. You know, I I have a little bit more tools and resources, um, but you know, it's like you make the most of what you have, and you you're trying to give the audience the biggest bang um, for the for the lowest dollar. And I think that's kind of where I come from. So I started in uh, making little dramatic short films as a kid. And then I ended up in the Middle East, of all places, making documentaries. I made seven or eight feature-length documentaries about the crisis that was going on there between Israel and Iran and other subjects. Um, and as I was doing that, I started writing feature films. I wrote a feature film called Persecuted that was um, attached to... Um, the producer of The Godfather, who, uh, Gray Fredrickson, who had won a couple of Oscars for that in Apocalypse Now, and he attached himself to it. While I was shopping it around L.A., um, I came to meet the executives at the asylum through a composer who scored the documentaries with me. And he said, you know, you have to meet this guy. So I, I presented them with this film and they said, wow, that's amazing, impressive. It's beyond our budget levels. But would you consider directing a film for us? Um, and they had this. Um, it was a uh, is a storm movie called 500 Mile Per Hour Storm It was originally called Hypercane with Casper Van Dien. And they greenlit at that time, um, persecuted. Um, I ended up casting that at, you know, for, for a little bit of a bigger budget than what they were willing to do. But it was the funny story about that was they were so pleased with the storm movie with Casper Van Dien that was made for just a few hundred thousand. They actually offered me Sharknado. They asked me to direct Sharknado. I remember sitting in the offices at, at the asylum and David Ramalli was telling me about these sharks. He's like, and these sharks that get into this tornado and then it's just mayhem. And I, I was laughing. I thought it was so entertaining. Little did I know, it become a worldwide phenomenon. So. Yeah. Well, what what made you pass on Sharknado? Well, I had already an obligation to do this movie that I had spent six or seven years developing, raising the money for, attaching an Oscar-winning producer. Yeah. The... Um, and I finally got it greenlit. So it was. I had a few million dollars to make this passion project, and I was already kind of going forward with it. It was. It was it was so odd, you know, at that time. It wasn't like I flat out turned down Sharknado. Mm -hmm. it, I can't put it that way. It was more of like they sort of ran it by my way. 
you know, as they were considering other people and it just didn't work out, you know, it just didn't work out. Um, I, I'm so happy that it turned out to be so successful. Um, but I, at the same time, I'm just grateful that it, um, that my first movie, the asylum executives really, um, cultivated an environment for me to grow as a director. And I will always appreciate them for that. Um, because I never would have got that other movie made without them. And now I've done four or five movies with them and other networks like Lifetime. And, and we're, we're working on one that's in the vein of a Hallmark film. Uh, so there's, there's more range we've explored. Uh, but, but it all goes back to that first opportunity they gave me, and I'm so grateful for it. And, and you said that's how you uh, were able to get Casper into your film, right? Yeah, so Casper did end up playing the lead in another movie that I directed. Um, and he, uh, and it was about, uh, it was a, it was a dramatic thriller that we made in Nashville, but he didn't end up, he, he, he was, uh, being considered for this movie persecuted, but no, he didn't end up doing it. 500 mile an hour storm is as unusual of a title as that is. Um, it, it, it was a really fun movie to make. It was so satisfying. So if you have any questions, you know, or you're interested in how the process works with the asylum, you know, having worked with other studios, I've, I've released films with Netflix, Sony pictures. Um, I said lifetime, they really have a, a, a respectable model that's kept them in business, um, through good times and bad. Mm -hmm. And it, it's very effective, you know, I really appreciate them. So you you do have kind of a unique history in that, as you mentioned, you 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 made all these documentaries um, before you you got into features. What what made you how did how did you get into the documentary business? Coming from you know making your own short films and things like that. Well, it, it was um, it was an opportunity that came to me through some family connections that. Uh, I, I, I got the rights to a book called Epicenter. It was about the crisis with Israel and Iran. And I, uh, I had, uh, sold a, a, a low budget documentary to, uh, to a network and the author had seen it and said, you know, you know, he should do our film. And that, that was kind of very weird how I got into doing documentaries, but I, but here's the thing. I think the reason the documentaries worked for me and worked for the asylum model too is that even when I was making a documentary about the crisis between Israel and Iran and we're interviewing the prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, I was still approaching it from a like an action drama point of view. I said, you know, I may not have the money to make a movie, but I'm going to make this feel like a theatrical experience. I want to make this feel, you know, like epic like a real movie because at the time i had no way to make a real movie so i just treated the documentaries that way i treated it you know um, like a dialogue and um and so that is what kind of kept the documentaries going is that they grew and i just i got to a place where i had made enough of them and i was screening a movie at the anchorage film festival and um they they I got a lot of pushback on reviews about the bias of the film, um, you know, being pro-Israel versus the Islamic world. And I felt that they were actually right. I was like, you know, I think they're right. And I, I think I'm done making documentaries for now. Um, and, uh, and that's right when the whole opportunity came forward with the, with the asylum is that the composer who had done the documentary and I were, had a conversation and, he really appreciated how I would shoot these documentaries feeling very cinematic. And he said, that's what kind of led him to give me the introduction with these executives. And, um, I showed them some screen tests we had done. We had done some reenactments and, and that's kind of what paved the way for it. It was really guerrilla filmmaking, you know? And, um, and I, and I've, I, even though my budgets in some cases have increased, um, I still treat it with the same attitude. I, it's like, I have no money let's go make this movie the best we can and, and give our audience the best experience possible. Um, you know, it really hasn't changed. You know, you have more people working on your sets and you have a lot more legal stuff involved. 
Um, but really it comes down to what are you going to put on that camera for the audience? So what was the shift like going from, you know, shorts and documentaries into feature films? That's a great question. I, I felt like that the doing the asylum film, the storm movie with a couple hundred thousand dollars was a pretty natural one. And they paired me with a really good, great DP. Um, he had come out of the American Film Institute. Um, he's now gone on to do Tyler Perry's. He's like Tyler Perry's go-to DP. He's done very well for himself, Richard Viele. But they paired me with a really gifted DP who had done Asylum movies before. So he really was useful to me in understanding, okay, so in the script, it says that 400 trucks and you know get sucked up into the hypercane and Casper Van Dien and he was able to understand help me understand um, how we can look at that in a way that's approachable and and how their whole VFX process works and so I, I felt like it was the DP and Casper's Casper Van Dien's uh, attitude with mine of you know what sure we have this amount of money but that it's not what it's about. We're, we're here to give and invest in this movie. So let's go talk to the National Guard and let's go talk to this business and let's use your star power to motivate them to give us their Black Hawk helicopters, which they did. The, the National Guard gave us a fleet of Black Hawk helicopters to fly in that movie. And we did things like that that remind me, going back to film school, of what you know, early cinema was like, and in some ways, you know, not every way, but even the studio directors like Howard Hawks and, and Charlie Chaplin in, in, in the early cinema, yeah, they had studios, but they also had a lot of constraints, a lot more constraints than we seem to have now, and they would just, the early directors that I studied would just, what can we give the audience? Let's go and let's not look at it like a transactional deal of what money we have, Let's use that and maximize it. And Casper had that attitude. And so I, if you ask me like what, what allowed me to transition, it was the same attitude of, okay, let's tell this story the best we can and let's go and sell whoever we have to sell to motivate them to, to allow this into our movie and, mm -hmm. and make this the best thing we can. And I think that that's really that attitude is what allowed me to continue to get picked to do asylums movies. Um, and, and I, and I'm, and I'm, I'm so thankful for it. I, I, I just don't see the limitations and, and, and now I'm in a different position a little bit because I both direct and line produce. So I'm the one walking the line of the finances and the budget while making the creative choices on these movies. And it actually allows me to monetize every bit to squeeze every bit I can out of that dollar to put it on screen uh, rather than having to fight with somebody else. I'm, I'm kind of arguing myself, you know, can we afford these extras? Can we not? Um, but that's what it was like for me in the transition was it was having guys like Casper Van Dien who had a, a no limits attitude as well as a, a really good DP who understood the asylum model um, to acclimate to. I really admire your passion for that. And I, I think, um, I mean, the asylum comes with a certain reputation, right? People sort of expect going in, kind of, they, they know what to expect with these mockbusters. So my question for you is, how, how did you approach that? What were your expectations of working with the asylum prior to you actually getting your first movie with them? You know, I didn't you know who, at the time, I didn't know who they were. So I didn't really have any preconceived notions. And then as it's odd, as I got into working with them, it was the people who had made movies for them in the past um, that brought about some of them an attitude um, toward, oh, this is the asylum, right? So this is what we give them, right? And I just, it didn't make sense to me. I was like, I'm just, I couldn't relate to that because I came from documentaries but they, you're so right. There is this attitude like, oh, you're working, you're working with them. And, um, and it's not, 
Netflix. It's not 20th Century Fox or what ha- A24, whatever it, whatever it is. And so uh, they they come with that attitude, and I learned that attitude. I understood what they were saying, and I even did my own research in re- reviewing articles that the asylum executives themselves had released. And I thought, okay, so I understand this is a very specific product. This is this is designed to be effective at the at the distribution level that's guaranteed. In fact, it's those dollars that they've sold other films to that are funding this at this budget, and they know they can sell it. It's very smart money. Um, but at the same time, coming from documentaries and even even doing some art house films myself, I I thought interesting so the art comes second to making sure that it's functional and we're here to make sure that we can deliver at a functional level first to make sure that we can stay in business so i get that i think that because i worked with um some people on that first project not necessarily a dp but other people who came in and and they had an attitude towards the asylum I, I was I was a little bit um, curious about how I would I would resonate with them in making this movie. I think it's the 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 attitude that I had about maximizing the production value that helped. Um, but it was it was a little it was a little weird. I think over time, having stepped away and done movies with other people, uh, with other studios, other distributors. Um, uh, on my own and then come back to working with them on different projects, I have a greater respect and appreciation that I don't think a lot of people have. Um, and that's okay. Like everybody has their way. They want to make a prestige project. I, I have some of those of my own. Um, that's fine. But for me, coming from where I do, I the, the way they think about a movie works with me because I, I when I come to do a movie I don't think about how much am I getting paid okay how much am I getting paid so this is what I'm going to give based upon that I, I'm thinking always like this is an investment it's a great privilege let's let's make this movie before they even realize they've given us the money and think about giving it to somebody else let's just make the very most we can um, and so um, and I've also seen a lot of um, other companies that I've worked with that were so-called prestige companies go out of business because they they spent too, more than they knew they could get back on a certain movie, and they they overinflated the the attractiveness of it being an awards prospect. Uh, so they spent too much on a certain number of films, and then they go down, they go bankrupt, and you look at the asylum and. You can you can criticize them, but they've been really steady and really sharp in continuing to deliver content, even through the whole COVID thing. You know, uh, it's 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 pretty awesome uh, what they've been able to do. So that's kind of a natural segue into the next question I want to get into. All this talk about just how economical they are, and also how you know their priority is making a, something that is commercial and guaranteed uh a release um and at this point you know they've been around for a long time and it definitely seems like kind of what you were saying they they know the kind of movies that they're making very specifically so so i mean just talk a little bit more about that production model i mean what would you say are maybe the uh the most um both the most challenging and f- the most fun things about directing for the asylum and, you know, just how you would describe their, their production model. Okay. So their production model with the asylum, they, first of all, clearly understand before they green light a film, what their distributors, their buyers willingness to pay is and then they set the budget at that level um once once that's been decided 
um, the the production schedule, everything of course is dictated by that. A lot of the a lot of the films are shot in somewhere between six to ten days, um, and they will you know they'll hand it to someone like me uh, or a line producer and then hand it off to a director at the same time. Um, the the um, there's three executives that oversee the process. Um, green lighting would be Mr. Amawi um, because he's involved with distribution. And then Mr. Latt, um, uh, David Latt oversees the production. So once it's handed off to a line producer, uh, he'll oversee the, the whole production process. He'll oversee the line producer and the director um and um you know it's a it's a very of course short timeline but there there is a very strict level of oversight you know with the creative process and they are they're very involved and very particular about maybe more so than ever before about the casting choices. Um, uh, even if we handle the, the casting locally, they're, they're involved at every level and, um, you know, they, they, they oversee all of it. Um, and I, I have to say that, you know, that I really respect and appreciate when I get see this goes back to my first film I did with them. When we got the dailies notes from David Latt, you know, there was a, some of people attitude of, oh, you know, they're just being so critical and he just comes down so hard. And I kind of listen to that. And I'm like, OK, they they really do dial in uh, on the creative level hard early on in the process. Um, but their instincts are spot on. They know the buyers they're selling to. And so it's for me, it's come into a place of resonance. Like if they say anything about the day's shots, I realize I wouldn't have this movie for for them. So I go to work with everybody. Their VFX supervisor is very involved in the pre-production process. So I will go to them and ask them intensively uh, what they expect for for the VFX, for this monster, for the the ape, or for the Godzilla-type character, they have very specific restrictions. You know, one thing that might, you might find funny is I was talking with the VFX supervisor about the specifics of what he wanted for the ape and the monster, the battle between them. And he said, you know, Daniel, it's so important that you ask these questions because we actually had an issue with on Sharknado where they didn't address these questions and we, we would hear in the dailies that when someone is supposed to get eaten by a shark that comes out of the tornado that the, the director just yelling shark and then the person would just act like they got eaten but they hadn't actually predetermined all the details about how it was supposed to work. So it made it really hard. And the VFX team, I think, did great for the challenges that they're dealing with. But the VFX team also knows that the, the director of that movie is dealing with such a short timeline. You're dealing with, I mean, 20-page days. 20 pages a day on Sharknado, or I don't know exactly what it was because I didn't do it. But on, I know on my movies, it's 10 to 20 pages a day, usually 17. You you really have to come in very well prepared. So what that's actually led me to do with the movies I've done is treat the month or two that I have for pre-production like it's production. I am preparing every single shot, every diagram, every storyboard, because I know when we get there to shoot, we have six days to 10 days. We just have to make choices. We really don't have time to deliberate. That's insane, and, by the way. Six to ten days. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? How, how long are the how long are the shooting days? Out of curiosity. So they're an average of ten days. I've never gone a minute over over budget or over schedule. So we're ten hours on those days. 
of that, actual shooting. That is, that's the, that's even less than I would have thought, <laughs> too. Yeah. yeah. That that so I take it that's got to be like, that's always got to be like the the big challenge. What what's the most fun thing about working uh, on one of these movies? Obviously, that's you know that probably has a certain level of stress to it but you seem to really like uh working with them so like what are the most fun things about working on asylum movies um it's a rush it's exciting um there's a there's a there's an empowering attitude towards the filmmaker though it's a really low budget it's uh it's a director driven process it feels like um, I feel that these executives, they, they know where to put input. They understand the limitations and they get involved uh, where they need to. And they also empower a director who has a vision. And uh, I think that's really fun. Um, I've, like I said, I've done I've done movies with bigger budgets, uh, much bigger budgets, and didn't have nearly as much fun. So I think it's the it's the limitations of of taking this vision that's impossible. It really is impossible to make, and and going, okay, yeah, we know that this is impossible. Let's use our imaginations and and make it the best experience we possibly can, knowing that people on uh, IMDB or other reviewers are just going to say what they're going to say. Mm -hmm. Fine. All right. Okay. You can say what you want to say, but you know, I'm here making this movie and I'm, I'm happy to be doing it. And there are some people out there who are going to enjoy it. So let's give it the best we can. And, and I think that that spirit is, uh, is where I started as a kid, you know, um, with no bunny. I mean, when I started making films, it wasn't like we had money. It was like, well, we had a camera, you know, and we had people, you know, and we could go out in the forest and shoot some. There might be an understanding or an expectation that if it's an asylum movie, that it's it's just a ripoff or it's, uh, it's oh, this is a mockbuster. But you know what I have to say to you? Like, if you look at Ape versus Monster, you know, I, I even had this conversation with people I know, and they say, oh, so this is a ripoff of Godzilla versus King Kong. And I said, well... If you look back at the history of Godzilla vs. King Kong, the one that's coming out here, this big budget movie, it could be considered a ripoff. Uh, and yet they're they're approaching it. If you watch it, they can they know they can make a movie. They got twenty to hundred million dollars. Uh, they can do it. For us to be able to complete the movie, it's a miracle. And and we, it comes from something that is beyond putting two and two together it, it comes from a passion for cinema it, it comes from people like my production designer stacy rich who's who's also my fiance and she is put heart and soul into building this capsule and choosing these locations and uh and is she getting paid what other people are getting paid no she's doing it because of she she loves to give and loves to give great work. So, you know, for instance, when we went to go build this capsule that the ape lands in, and he's coming in from outer space, and he's he's ingested this green goo that's come from the aliens, and he's grown to large proportions. Well, we need a capsule. We need a capsule. Do we have the money for a capsule? No, of course we didn't have the money. For it. We had a few hundred dollars to make a capsule. And, and we approach people like who build for Netflix – and they quote us ten thousand dollars to build this capsule. Well, that's that's like ten percent of our entire budget. <laughs> we can't do that. So, so we have people working overnight, day and night, to build this capsule because they love the idea of giving something on screen that's worth worth a damn. Uh, you know, so I, I love that part of it. So. Um... Uh, we mentioned the the idea of you know the mockbusters, which um, is isn't probably isn't most of the asylum titles, but it's definitely the thing that they might be known for the most, at least prior to 
to Sharknado. Um, and I, you've made uh, uh, the Top Gun one, Top Gunner, and you made this Ape versus Monster. When it comes to the actual, you know, I guess mockbuster type of of, of movies, and how how much info um, do you take into consideration? I guess in uh, being uh, the architect of a mockbuster. Well, I wouldn't call myself an architect because they already have a very sophisticated development process that's usually already taken place before I'm even involved. For instance, Top Gunner or this one, Ape vs. Monster, they've already developed uh, the script significantly before they even send it to me. So um, I don't look at the other movies and study and attempt to mimic them. In fact, if I recall going back to the early uh, days of doing these, um, they they don't um, sit there and study. They don't really encourage that you sit there and look at them. They really want you to create your own vision of what this is. Um, but clearly, clearly, it's very specific to the style that uh, that, for instance, a movie like Top Gunner or um, or Ape versus Monster is going to be released under. It's a, it's a very specific product, so it's not like it's it's just uh, we're mimicking what they do or just making our own thing entirely. It's it's a hybrid of the two. It's you know what clearly they've already made sure that it met checked off those boxes that fits that genre but once it comes to me i've never had them say you know it, it really needs to be like 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 this specifically this creatively there really is a lot of but i i would say for myself i do my own research actually when it comes to a movie like top gunner i really love the original top gun movie i had actually studied that film a lot because i i like tony scott's work so there was a familiarity uh to a movie like that <clears throat> but when it comes to like ape versus monster this is this it, it really doesn't align itself to at least in my mind um and i'm just the director but <clears throat> to this new one that just came out i mean i hadn't seen the new one i had watched the trailer because it's everywhere no, right. but i had i had <laughs> watched the movie you know uh, so I, I understood here's the style, but I can actually look back to other Godzilla movies, the history of, and, uh, so for me, I'm really looking at, okay, what is the, what is the mosaic? What is the bigger picture of what Godzilla versus King Kong is? And now let's, let's make this as effective as we can. And, and I want to say for this one, this one specifically, I mean, there is a tremendous amount of heart and soul from the cast and the crew. I see from the VFX team as well. I mean, there's there's some things that you can look at and criticize and go, gosh, that looks a little factory. But there's also some incredible, genuine moments that that we that we put into this that I believe are more of a throwback to the original Godzilla vs. King Kong. Uh, incarnations than what's been put out by the major studios today. I definitely want to get back to the your history with you know kaiju and giant monster films in a second, but I, I was curious how much how much you, you talked about the writing process. How much time, or do you know how much time the writers are actually given to write these films? It really depends on which project it is. Um, the timeline can be really short. Uh, it can be a as far as I understand it, a couple months to uh, one of the projects I did with them for a lifetime. We spent about a year uh, develop. I was involved with that one. And, uh, you know, from the creative level, cause it was understood, I'm going to direct this. I'm going to help, help shepherd the process, not be the main person, but I helped shepherd the script and it. And we spent over a year on that one. So it, it just really depends it seems to me that, that um, when it's uh, it, 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 it's dependent upon what the market can support on the project. 
Um, do you, uh, I, cause you mentioned, you know, by the time you get the, uh, involved, you know, the script's already written. Do you, do you, is there any correspondence with the screenwriter throughout the rest of the process or are they typically, by the time it gets into your hands, they're typically hands off and onto something else? Um, by the time it gets to me, yeah, they are, I mean, I can only I can only postulate. I don't know. Uh, I'm not usually very involved with the writer. I can say that. So it would be my postulation that they're on to something else. Yeah. So it sounds like in this case, Eight versus Monster was a, a specific project that was brought to you based on your involvement with your docu- the documentaries. Is that correct? Like it wasn't something that you you sought out yourself. It was more a project that they brought to your doorstep. Yeah, it. I think it's it's more to do with the fact that I had a, a history of doing a couple of other movies with them that were, um, you know, effective in in creating production value. You know, that was m- significant. Uh, maybe, maybe also to do with the fact that, um, yeah, possibly related to the, this more visceral, you know, documentary style, uh, cinema that too. Um, but I, I wouldn't attribute it too much to the documentaries, probably more to this attitude that I have of whatever you give us, we're just going to blow it out of the water, you know? Um, when you get a movie like this, you know, comes across your desk or or whatever, what what goes into your decision on, you know, whether whether to take take on a project like this or not? Um, well, that's a good question. I, I feel like uh it's more intuitive for me. I feel that I wanna <clears throat> I wanna I wanna love it. I, I can Look at usually I'll read the treatment. They'll send me a treatment uh, or two. It's an, usually a nine act. Here's a summary and outline of what the movie is. And I'll feel something on a visceral level like, okay, this gets me excited. I mean, I think that's really what I want is something to be excited about, something that I can get other people excited about as I know I'm going to be in the trenches fighting for this thing. And so when I read the, when I read the treatment, I want to feel something on a gut level. You know what I mean? And, and I think that's like, they, like when it was top gunner or this other storm movie, I looked at the two treatments and I just felt something like, Oh, this is going to challenge me. This is going to, I'm going to feel this. This is, it seems impossible, but I can give it everything I got with the eight versus monster. I remember actually hearing back from one of the executives. They were shocked that I resonated with it. And I think that I liked, I liked how um, foreign it was to me. It was challenging and testing me in areas I had never gone near before. Uh, and and then right after the versus monster, I'm doing a romantic comedy that's that's you know in the vein of Hallmark, and and I loved that because it was so different than what I had just done. So I'm, I've been constantly trying to test myself to try a different area that I've ever done before. So that's, that's a big test. There are certain things I probably wouldn't go near, but I want to, I want to feel it on a deep level. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I saw an interview with the screenwriter of a monster, uh, George Michael Phillips, and he had mentioned that, um, originally he had written it. So where the ape fights a scorpion and then they decided to replace a scorpion with a lizard to make it more, you know, Godzilla adjacent. Did you get a chance to, to read that version of the script or was it all always the giant lizard, uh, by then? <laughs> Yeah, I actually did read that, and uh, and I was actually already in the early development process uh, of of doing shot planning when it was the Scorpion. So yeah, that was that was pretty that was a, that was a big change. But I am actually really happy that that we went with this Godzilla because if you watch the movie, the VFX, the work that they did on the on the Godzilla, the the, the Gila monster character, 
is pretty cool. You know, I think they did a great job with it. Um, the scorpion was, um, I was going to be tricky, you know, they have these big claws coming out, but it, it, it could have worked for the desert. And, and, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen any of those sequences, but there's this one sequence with this soldier who's tasked with like guarding this capsule and there's, um, <clears throat> there's this moment where the, the Godzilla type character, you know, sneaks up on him and takes off half his body. And, um, I don't think it would have worked the same way with the Scorpion. Right. Um, and, uh, the title ape versus monster is very like, you know, it's very blunt. Um, did it always have, uh, that title, um, or, or were you involved in the titling process or know about the titling process? It see, was it a case where they were just like, you know, people are going to know what we're doing here. We might as well just kind of be forthcoming, you know, it's ape versus monster. Yeah. So, so we had some other titles that were thrown around like Astro Ape versus Gila Monster. And I, I actually personally am a fan of simplifying it down. I, I didn't have any decision in making that. Uh, usually I don't. Usually they, they actually make the decisions themselves on, uh, on those titles. And actually, funny enough, they usually don't end up with a title that is as uh, simple it's like, like for instance, I did that Hypercane movie, and they end up changing the title to 500 Mile Per Hour Storm. And I thought, oh my gosh, like that's so complicated. Can we just go with something simple? <laughs> right? So, so I was like, oh man, you, you know, this, this Ape vs. Monster movie, it's not going to end up being simple. It'll be end up being this longer title. So I was surprised that they ended up going with that. And I was very happy with it because it's just like, look, this is a monster versus an ape. Here you go. You know, <laughs> uh, I want to come back to the, uh, the plot. It's in a second. But before that, are you a fan of giant monster films in general? And can you talk about your, your history? <laughs> in general, I would not call myself an expert. I would say I would, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a fan. I follow. I have followed for you know many years and not maybe going back to the earliest of earliest monster movies. I, I would say I'm more of a student uh, of of these and um, and I know what I like and I and I know what what resonates with me. But I I wouldn't call myself an expert by any means. But I I particularly and it's so weird to me that these movies these so called mockbusters like Top Gunner or uh, Ape versus Monster have been put in my lap because they actually come from a brand that I have carefully enjoyed over years. Um, you know, I even know uh, like Tony Scott, who did the original Top Gun film. I actually had met his wife at a at an awards ceremony and talked with her just before I was offered that movie about how big of a fan I was of of tony scott's work on top gun and then i got offered the top gunner movie it was weird how that happened but i had actually been watching a lot of the godzilla and king kong movies contemporary movies um before this one came my way so definitely a student definitely someone who really really loves this work but i wouldn't consider myself an expert in this area i mean in terms of the history of them it's more something that I really have has studied lately. Awesome. So I, I'm curious about the plot. So like this, you know, ape versus monster seems to have a lot of similarities with the movie Rampage. So you have the the goo from outer space and the how it affects the creatures and so forth. Um, was it always intended to be, uh, you know, a Godzilla versus Kong mockbuster, or was there maybe some um, intention to use to, to play off Rampage instead? I think it was always designed to be an, uh, a Godzilla versus King Kong. That's 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 my sense with it. Yeah, but I say that because no. it's it's very clearly been 
I guess, communicated to me that that's where it was headed. But you could see some similarities and in, in, uh, in the Rampage stuff, too. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, when was the, the film actually completed? Because Godzilla vs. Kong obviously had a delay multiple times. Uh, so we completed the movie in February of, uh, of this year. Okay. Yeah, Are you so, allowed to talk about the... Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. I mean the... No, no, <laughs> you, you, it's all you. Go for it, yeah. Um, you mentioned this a couple times, but um, are you allowed to talk about the budget of, of this specific film? It sounded like it might have been around $100,000 based on some of your early comments. Yeah, I can speak generally. I can't speak um, authoritatively. There are some numbers that I'm uh, not involved with, but I... Uh, about what we used for production on that one was about a hundred. And then I would expect that it was at least a hundred thousand more that goes into the VFX and the post-production and stuff like that. So all in all, you're probably looking at about a quarter of a million roughly. Um, so I was, I was in, and I, I know the asylum and other low budget companies, do this. I, w I was looking at kind of um, you know some of the visual effects, and uh, um, you know I, w I was reading that the the, the giant lizard was um, uh, um, a stock model. I um, and that a lot of the asylum and um, like uh, sci-fi sometimes use stock um, effects. Is is that something that um, do you happen to even know uh, what was maybe? Um, original to this film or, or something that they might have had left over from other films or um, uh, models that they, they'd come into possession of? Do you have any idea um, just what the ratio might be there? I'm not in the room with all the VFX guys, but what I've, what I've seen and what I really push for is... Uh, originality even if they are working on some basic mm -hmm. models that they've had um in terms of movement and stuff like that i know from watching and approving the vfx models that they were making cosmetic changes that were specific to this movie mm -hmm. to capture the emotion a little bit more that was important to me i wanted to really register the relationship between the ape and our lead character because she had a history with him. And I felt that they, they worked on that as much as they could. Um, and it, and it, it felt pretty good. Okay. I mean, there were issues, there's issues that I had with certain things and we're on a tight timeline and I'm, I'm respectful of that, but, uh, I didn't feel at least with this movie at all that it was, they were working with stock, uh, VFX, um, I, I would say that there are definitely parts where you notice this there's limitations in what what they're able to do. There is times where you're utilizing stock footage, mm -hmm. you know, for transitions or city shots or helicopter shots. That's where I feel like you come into, you know, using stock is like, okay, we need an Apache to fly in here and it's dark okay, are we going to recreate this or are we just going to use something that we have? But to be fair, I've seen that even done on big budget oh, studio yeah, movies yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, especially when it comes to stock footage, I, movies of all budgets, you know, will use, you know, an establishing shot or 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 even like an explosion effect or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, but that, that, does that, does, that, that leads nicely into my next question, which is just... You know, after principal photography and everything, um, how involved are you with the visual effects team um, and things like that? Um, very involved. Um, I uh, usually have an opportunity to give notes on the very first cut that the the editor supplies, and um, I will. I'll do that before the executives come and take a look at the film. And then after that, they weigh in and give their notes. And then once the film is locked, then they send me um, a first preview of all of the VFX shots. 
and I'll uh, go through them and provide any notes on those. After that's done, they'll give me a review on all the color and, and then the sound mix as well, usually. So um, I'm involved with it. That's not something that I'm required contractually to do. It's something that I, I just love to do. So um, I'm glad that they give me an opportunity to do it. Okay. Um, speaking of post-production things, um, do you get involved in you know the editing process or, or the scoring process? You know with with music and things like that as well. Uh, yes. Yeah, I usually do. I usually get involved with the the scoring process and the mixing process, um, because especially because the composer who I've worked with many times a good friend of mine um i get an, i get an opportunity on these tighter timelines a lot more with what we choose for the temp score you know that's like on a movie uh that i that i just did we you know i'm i'm involved with picking out what temp score they use because that's a lot of what influences the final choices and then, you know, I'd say for myself that um, having that conversation with the composer about where it's going to go and what it's going to feel like, it's critical to developing a vision for it. That said, the asylum executives ultimately have the final say on the score, and they they know what it's going to be for, and they, the composers who work on it, know what's going to be effective. So you know there's there's input but it's also it's also a, a trusting process of what's expected so you mentioned earlier that the, the shoot was uh you know six to ten days my question is um were there any time for actual rehearsals and how many takes would you actually do for each scene uh, usually only about two or three takes for each scene. So we do rehearsals on some, I mean, I, I'm big on rehearsals. I love doing rehearsals, um, for, for, a schedule like six days to make a movie. We're usually doing cast readings in advance. I do a table reading and that's from what I understand a little more unusual for these short schedules, but I insist on it because I, I think of myself as an actor's director. So I like to have an opportunity to build rapport with the cast. I spent a lot of time with them, uh, gaining really a, a little rapport to understand that. Yes, they know the important, the performances are important to me. Yes, this is a low-budget film, but we're not just going to walk through this. We're going to give our heart and soul to it. And so a conversation that I have with the actors, the table reading, and then I usually do have to do on these schedules rehearsals there right on set. And so we'll work the scene over and over into a rhythm before we shoot it because we know we're only going to get a couple takes. So that's kind of how I do the rehearsals on set um is uh is just by working the scene before the take how long was the shoot for this movie was it six days it was six days that's yeah. that's mind-boggling um anyway <laughs> so uh uh my next question you know uh speaking of the cast um this is from what I can tell, uh, your second time working with Eric Roberts, um, who has such a diverse and uh, varied filmography, and I mean, the guy's just always working. What what is he like to work with and and to direct? <laughs> Eric Roberts. Oh, he is a character. He's he's done over five hundred movies. You know, he's uh, done everything from The Dark Knight. Uh, he's uh, he's an Oscar nominee, but he he just he has this boyish love for movies, um, like just a kid in a candy store. 
and he just has fun being on set and he loves it and it makes it really fun to work with. And so um, him and I had a little bit of rapport because I had worked with a few other actors that were good friends of his going into it. Um, that helped us develop a little bit of rapport. But what I like about Eric uh, is that he comes in and he's fully present and he just wants to be there. And he's not trying to get out of there to get the day over with. Having done over 500 movies, I think that's a lot to say about a person. Um, we've had our you know, friction here and there because of schedule and things like that, trying to get things done on time. But we've we left on a great note. We'd love to work together again. And I think that um, when, when he comes in, he's 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 bringing all of that experience with him and it and it makes a big difference because he knows if you give him a note he can just do it it's like adjusting his instrument immediately he can he can deliver um it's it's fun it's fun working with him um so how involved were you with you know um the cast and their in their characters and the the performances i the only reason I, i'll be honest the only reason i'm even asking this is because i fell in love with uh i believe it's rj wagner that plays the general i absolutely fell in love with his southern accent oh my gosh wasn't he good <laughs> yeah I, and and some of his he had some of what i thought was the most fun uh dialogue in in the whole movie wasn't he great? He, my fa that's actually one of my favorite lines of the whole movie was R.J. Wagner when he says, this is intergalactic combat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's just, uh, he's, he's just constant. I couldn't take my eyes off of him <laughs> when so I watched great. it. <laughs> that guy, and he was perfect for this because he's like, I lived in L.A., I didn't make it where I wanted to make it, but... Here I am doing this. I'm just going to give it everything I got, and he loves it. And he he's so entertaining to watch. No, he really like, the the he just chewed every bit of scenery he could. It was it was fantastic. I, it was just he's that was just such a fun <laughs> fun performance. Everything that came out of his mouth was was gold. Do you have any uh, particularly funny or interesting stories about the ape versus monster shoot? Um, well, you know, I I think the whole experience is just a is the is the funny story. It just is this this stream of passionate filmmakers that ran into an impossible situation and they churned something out that's that mattered to each of us and i think that we we look at that like you know maybe the world of cinema will never appreciate what we put into this and what we, why we care about what we did, but we know what we did and we know the feat that we accomplished and how much fun we had making it. And, um, it kind of goes back to that capsule that was created from nothing that was impossible to make and yet we they the art department delivered that and i am so proud of the work that everybody did and um so i don't i don't really have a funny story but what i can say is that every single person involved with making of this um came to it with a great deal of passion and commitment. That's actually a great segue into my next question as we're kind of winding down here. But um, this is a movie that's really made for, you know, a specific audience and that has a specific taste. And I'm just kind of curious, 
Um, what kind of audience do you hope Ape versus Monster finds now that it's out in the wild? That's that's a great question. I think it's it's an audience that that really doesn't care about the labels as much as they care about the experience. Maybe niche fans who really love um, a ape, you know, Godzilla versus King Kong. They they love that world and. They just want to watch something that's entertaining. If you're somebody who can rip off the labels, the ego labels of, oh, well, this is a big budget movie versus a low budget movie. I'm just going to watch this because I love a good monster movie and I can I can sink my teeth into this and, you know, just have a good time and laugh and 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 get excited and not be critical those are the type of people I think I want to watch. I, I would like to watch this. That, and, that, you know what I mean? Yeah, that that kind of falls in line with, you know, how I tend to watch, you know, a lot of B-movies, whether it's The Asylum or, you know, a Roger Corman movie. Like, if a movie is entertaining, then it'll win me over. Like, one of my favorite things before co- well I'm vaccinated hopefully I can start again one of my favorite things to do with my friends is we would have these nights where we would you know watch uh you know B movies and just kind of like order a pizza and 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 laugh and to it's like the most social thing I do like I don't go out like I don't go to clubs or bars like my idea of a good time with my friends is hanging out and watching like these like low budget monster movies and having a good time with them. Well, I love that. But yeah, one of my friends met, I think David Michael Latt at Comic-Con one year and he was like, yeah, we, I get together with friends and we just hang out and watch these asylum movies. And, you know, we laugh at them. We have a good time with them. And he, he just loved that. Um, it's awesome yeah yeah he he loved the idea of like yeah we have these like you know we call them like bad movie nights where we just get together and just watch these low budget films and like you know we really do appreciate what you can do like you said six days like most people would lose their minds if they were told they had to make a movie in six days and like the entertainment value with like what they can do with such little time and so much and and no money, I can be entertained just as easily by an asylum film as a Marvel movie. You know, there's different kinds yeah. of entertainment. I, and and yeah, I love to hear the creators of these movies say that they get it and that they get that. You know, like that at this point, like I am the audience for this kind of film. You know, and it, it seems like uh, like you guys know that too. Of course, yeah, gotta know it. Gotta know what you're delivering and who you're delivering it to. I'm not sure how much insight you can give, uh, but w- the the two things that made the asylum, you know, kind of a, a name in low budget films are yes, the mockbusters, which had a big presence in video stores, right? And you know, advertising to play to the interests of people that are seeing these bigger Hollywood movies, and then also the Sharknado films, which you know, had, uh, you know, a big presence on cable TV, and with video stores kind of dying out, and it seems at least lately a little bit less TV support with, with some of the Asylum projects. Do you know if their approach is, is changing or going to change towards films like this? And, you know, do you see them going in a certain direction to accommodate all these changes in the market? Uh, no. Well, I do see them going towards these changes. Uh yeah, I absolutely do. Um, I think they're continuing to adapt as they go forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and that's a problem that you guys have just as much as, you know, the big studios, especially now with COVID and everything. So as we um, come to a close, first, I just want to thank you for your for your time. Um, but And then second, I, I want to make sure we give you ample time to plug any upcoming projects um, where people can contact you. And just to, to make sure that you have an opportunity to kind of share maybe what you have uh, coming down the pipe. Uh, well, I have a variety of things coming down the pike. 
uh, you know, it's going to depend on how things go with uh, this movie. Um, I've been I have an apocalyptic uh, movie coming up, a spy thriller coming up, a comedy TV series coming up. Um, so there's there's a few things going on. But right now I'm just kind of taking time to be uh, here present for my uh, family, and for my kids. So uh, just kind of taking a deep breath right now. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens. Okay. Um, and yes, Ape versus Monster. Uh, I think it's uh, out on VOD to rent on at most places. Amazon, Voodoo, Fandango. Um, so check it out. And uh, no, this has been a great experience. I mean, I've, I've, like I said at the beginning, I've been an Asylum fan for many, many years. And, you know, I haven't seen a whole lot of interviews with Asylum folks. So just kind of getting to get you here, pick your brain, and really learn what the process was like. Uh, I mean, it, it's definitely been enlightening. And, yes, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. And it has been so great to hear people who are Asylum advocates, because I certainly am. And I really appreciate you guys taking the time to do this. I really hope people who will give this movie a chance uh, will enjoy it because there's some amazing work that's been put into it. And um, uh, and we'll stay tuned, you know, because there's going to be some more things coming out. And I'll tell you what, if, uh, you know, come rain or come shine, when those big budget movies that have hundreds of millions of dollars um aren't able to put their movies out because they spent too much and there's COVID or something else happening. We'll be here. Yeah. After, after the apocalypse, what movie studios will be left? The asylum. <laughs> That's right. Hey, we have that going for us, right? <laughs> right. Well, thank you. No, this, this has been great. And, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Awesome. You guys have a good one. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you. Yeah, you too. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Daniel. Bye. Take Bye. care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.